Welcome to Candidates Corner, a political podcast created by university students and brought to you by VoteUSA.org. VoteUSA is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that provides information on candidates across the country for voters before they go to polls on Election Day. This summer, we will be discussing the issues facing states and jurisdictions across the country. Each episode, we will be interviewing a candidate on the campaign trail seeking a win in their primary elections. Any opinions and statements expressed by the candidates are their own and do not reflect the views or beliefs of Vote USA. I'm Sam Andrus. Welcome to Candidates Corner. California's 40th governor, Gavin Newsom, faces a recall next month. Newsom first served as lieutenant governor in 2010 and 2014, then eventually ran for the governorship in 2018. Newsom won 61.9% of the vote with 7,721,410 ballots and defeated businessman and Republican John Cox in the general election. That 61.9% was the highest percentage any Democrat had gained in the race's history, surpassing Jerry Brown's 59.97% from 2014. Cox was endorsed by former President Trump and Newsom by former President Obama. Newsom was sworn in in January 2019 and most recently has been leading the charge against COVID in California. The recall of Gavin Newsom was first introduced by a deputy sheriff of Yellow County, California, Oren Heathly, in February of 2020. The petition alleged that Newsom favored illegal immigrants, allowed the homelessness crisis to go unchecked, and that California's taxes were too high and the quality of life too low. The petition gained momentum with Newsom's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Grievances were that Newsom was too slow to reopen the state and that his lockdown procedures were too strict. The petition received support from the chair of the California Republican Party, as well as a $50,000 donation from his 2018 opponent, John Cox, who is now also running in the recall election. Among other things, one specific issue that triggered so much support for the recall was Newsom's attendance at a birthday party at the French Laundry Restaurant in Napa Valley in November of 2020. The party had more than three guests and was thus a violation of his own policies for the state to avoid a holiday spike. Newsom since apologized, but the image hurt his credibility. In January of 2021, the petition reached 1 million signatures, and in February, the petition organizers announced that they had surpassed 1.5 million signatures needed to trigger the election. Newsom now faces what the chair of the California Democratic Party called the quote-unquote California coup, a reference to the January 6th insurrection, which was widely criticized by members of both parties. Brandon Ross is a Democrat from California running to unseat Gavin Newsom as governor of California. He received his bachelor's at the University of California, Davis, a law degree from Purdue, and a medical degree from Tufts. Before running, Ross worked as an attorney and a cosmetic surgeon. Hello, Mr. Ross. Thank you so much for coming on our episode today. How are you doing? Hi, Sam. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So why don't we get right into the questions? Question number one. So, Mr. Ross, why are you running to unseat Gavin Newsom? Well, I'm not running to unseat him. Um, the The recall is uh, in two parts. There's a whether he gets unseated or not, and then the second question is, if he is unseated, who should be replacing him? And I've been encouraging everybody to vote no on the recall, so I'm, I'm not trying to unseat him at all. I think that he should stay. I think he's done a pretty good job. But I, you know, if he is recalled, then I, I think there should be a, a a really good alternative to him as a Democrat um, for other Democrats to choose from, so that there, you know, there's remains a Democrat in office. Awesome, good answer. In your Thanks. candidate statement, you said, "As the pandemic persists, we need someone who knows the medical science and the law, 
A big part of why this recall gained so much traction is actually Newsom's response to the pandemic. As someone with a medical background, what do you think that you could have done better? Well, yeah, I mean, a big part of this is that he, um, you know, not only the response to the pandemic, which was pretty good, um, but um, but also, you know, he made that mistake where he he didn't wear a mask right after he had a mask mandate. So that that caused a lot of stir. But um, but overall, I think he's done a pretty good job on the pandemic. I mean, it's it's it was new to everybody. And, um, you know, policies changed as the environment changed. But. I think that a couple of things I would have done differently are um, I would have opened up schools sooner because schools, um, you know, being closed, I've got three kids and boy, my kids had a miserable time with the, uh, the, the online learning. Um, and I think that if, uh, if we could have opened schools up uh, sooner, it would have been better from, you know, a social standpoint and a, an education standpoint. And then the other thing I probably would be doing right now is a mask mandate. I don't think that, um, I mean, there is no mask mandate right now. There really should be. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's this Delta virus is getting out of control and it's, it's, it's still, we're still having a lot of people die here. So there, it's not hard to wear a mask. And I think that should be mandated right now. Definitely. Definitely. So further on your medical background, you have a degree in genetics and a master's in public health, as well as working as a cosmetic surgeon uh, at your job. How do these qualities of yours transfer to not only handling the pandemic, but being in the office of governor as well. Yeah, well, so I think the genetic degree um, and background let me have an understanding of the virus on more of a molecular level, whereas, uh, you know, having a public health background and uh, being a medical doctor, that gives me more of an understanding of how to manage the virus in a population level. And I think that combination would let me make better decisions, uh, or not better, but you know, good decisions as far as uh, is what to do and when regarding this pandemic. Definitely. Could you actually elaborate more on what you mean by the molecular level that you understand COVID at? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I understand that the 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 um, the, the basics of the of the um, the COVID uh, virus itself, like down to the the spikes on its uh, on the uh, on its surface that allow it to attach and spread. I understand, um, you know, what like how the the vaccine um, will work and and just really the science behind it um, down to um, down to the microscopic level. Are you vaccinated? Sure, I am. Yeah, I got vaccinated in, uh, and my vaccines were in uh, January and February. Perfect. Me too. <clears throat> Moving on. You say in your agenda that you believe in vaccines and think that more effort and funds should be put into education, but also that people who don't want to get the vaccine shouldn't have to. As a medical professional, what do you think is the best path forward to protect the citizens of California? Well, I think that the vaccine awesome and everybody should get it. They should step up to the plate and pitch in and do their part to get vaccinated so we can end this um, this pandemic. But I think that you also have to measure um, or sort of balance the the um, the vaccine, like a vaccine mandate versus civil liberties. And um, you know, not everybody wants to get the vaccine for whatever reason. And I think that it's it's a bad idea not to get the vaccine. And I think we should educate people, make sure they're understanding of what the risks and benefits that are involved with getting the vaccine or not getting the vaccine. I mean, you can die if you don't have it, and you get you get infected. Um, 
And um, I think that so uh, really we should continue to press people to get the vaccine. I think there should be mandates in certain situations like um, in the healthcare field. I think the healthcare professionals should either be vaccinated or they should have, uh, you know, like twice weekly testing to make sure they don't have the vaccine. Because if somebody in healthcare ends up getting the virus, they can spread it to patients who are already at risk to their, you know, their health is already in question. And then I think there should also be a, a mandate for teachers because not kids under uh, under 12 can't get the vaccine yet. So they're more at risk of getting um, the virus. And they're also more at risk of spreading the virus to the adult teachers. And when one teacher goes down, the whole class goes down. So um, to, in order to keep that pillar of, um, of the, of the um, society open, the education pillar, I think that the teachers should be vaccinated and also nursing homes because the people in nursing homes are so vulnerable to getting sick from the virus. I think that workers there should also either be tested, you know, a couple times a week to make sure they don't have the, the virus or they should be vaccinated. Well put, well put. Moving on from the COVID question, you state on your website that you think that every homeless person should be entitled to food, shelter, and health care. With an increase in public housing and homeless shelters, we would be able to do that. Could you elaborate more on how and where you would implement these shelters? I think that, uh, that we should be building more public housing. Um, I, back in Boston, uh, when I went to medical school, I lived next door to the Prix there. Um, it, was a, it was public housing. And those are some of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, and, and they, you know, some of them were down on their luck, didn't have enough money to afford housing, and they, the state, uh, state funded that. And I think that we should build a lot more public housing in, in California, especially in the big cities where the homeless population is the most out of control. Um, I think we need to, to open up public lands and build on the public lands or just lands that are, uh, that are not in the nicest areas, you know, a little bit cheaper land so you could save some money. But building more houses there gets people off the streets. And also, the, as far as the shelters, I think we can buy up. They're already doing this to some extent, but I think we should be able to buy up um, abandoned warehouses, abandoned um, hotels and things like that that are already kind of set up for, for housing, especially with the hotels, because they've already got the, the, uh, the building segmented into rooms. And I think there should be um, somebody, uh, people that are state-funded um, workers that sort of oversee each individual structure, make sure people are getting along inside and that they have food and, and water. And, um, and then there should be, um, they should also have health care. Definitely. I definitely. You say that many of your solutions to things like vaccine hesitancy, the opioid epidemic, and homelessness rely on state-funded things like education programs, clinics, and these public shelters that you were just talking about. But you also propose eliminating a state tax on the lower and middle class, as well as lowering the gasoline tax. My question is, even with the surplus, the changes you would implement would still be expensive. So why cut taxes? Yeah, that's only half my plan. I, I do think we should lower the um, the gasoline taxes is pretty high. And, um, and also, I think we should eliminate the state income tax on um, on people making $150,000 and less so that people have more money. There's uh, the lower income, not lower income, but, you know, the middle class has more money to, to spend um, and and can deal with this homeless crisis and, and the um, not homeless crisis, the, the lack of homes, a housing crisis. And, um, but I, the other half of my plan is to raise the marginal income tax rate on, 
on the top earners, people making more than $2 million. So I think the, the marginal tax rate is something like 13% or 13.5% right now. I think that should go up to 20%. And if you get another 6 to 7% um, of revenue from people making $2 million or more, that is a lot of money. And that more than makes up for the shortfall you get with lowering the taxes on the, there's a lot more people making less than 150,000, but there's only, they pay a 1% tax rate or a 2% tax rate or no tax at all, depending on what they make. So raising it on the big earners makes up for the, the shortfall you'd receive from the other tax cuts I've, I proposed. Now you just said that you would want to raise taxes for people making over $2 million. What about the Jeff Bezos's Elon Musk, people making upwards of $500 million a year, would those be the same as the $2 million, or would it be a, a marginal increase for that bracket? And, um, but the amount of money that you get, if you imagine 7% of Jeff, Jeff Bezos's income is uh, you know a great deal of money, so I don't think you need to tax him at 50% or something like that. I mean, that's not fair. He's got a, a right to earn money too, but 7% for everybody, including the huge billionaire owners, that's a lot of revenue, and that that um, that alone should fund a lot of things in California. <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense. Moving on a bit more, you say you want to enhance the rebate system regarding climate change, as well as protect our water sources and build more public transportation systems. Considering the latest climate report from the IPCC, do you think that that would be enough? Yeah, I read that report, and um, it, it is pretty scary. It's talking about a, a, I think it was one and a half um, a degree Celsius warming in the next fifteen years, or something like that. Um, and um, and yet, no, the the, the um, what I've proposed uh, was not enough um, uh, as far as rebates and stuff. But I, I think that in the long term, we need to build um, we need to build more infrastructure. I think we need to build more renewable energy sources, solar, wind energy. And then as far as the water, water is going to get worse and worse because it's hotter. And so we've got less water to go around and that's going to continue to get worse. So I think we need to fund desalinization plants. California has, has a few already. The biggest one in North America is in Carlsbad, right by me in, in San Diego. Um, I think about 10% of the water in San Diego is from these desalinization plants. And that's a, an endless source of water. Then you take salt water and you make it to clean drinking water or planting water. And then it's expensive to do it. But, um, but the prices are coming down on that. And I think the long-term solution is we need to be able to generate enough water to, 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 to meet our demand. And doing so, we need to just put desalinization, desalinization plants all along the coast so that we can uh, we can make it. And then, you know, if there's if there's certain times, certain years where we've got plenty of water, well, then we don't need to generate as much from the, the seawater. But on times of drought, like we've got right now, we can we can crank up the volume on that um, and, and generate our own water. Uh, we just need to be able to have the capacity to do that. Definitely, definitely. As you may or may not be aware, there are actually some people running in the same race as you who are adamantly opposed to, to restrictions on climate change. They are climate change deniers. What would you say uh, while trying to pass some of this legislation to those climate change deniers? Well, I'd say wake up. I mean, come on, it's 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 proven that there's climate change. It's obvious. Um, I mean, you can look at the 
amount of carbon in the air. I mean, it's, it's very easy to measure from a scientific standpoint. And I think a lot of this is very partisan. I think it's a Republican sort of talking point to say, nah, climate change isn't real. You know, don't worry about it. It's, it's just it comes and goes um, because they want to be able to pump more gas and prop up the fossil fuel industry. And I think that, I mean, it's so obvious that it's ridiculous to me that anybody would argue that there's no climate change. I just, I grew up in California, been here my whole life, except for when I went away to school. And I've seen, I've seen it change. It's hot now. Like it never used to be hot like this in the summertime. And even in the wintertime, we've got really hot, hot days. It's so obvious. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there were cycles where it was hotter or colder, but not like this. And, and it's, I mean, it just, as a, as someone who's got a, a science background, it just makes me shake my head. And, and I mean, really wake up. Climate change is real and we need to address it right now. Now, you previously stated that your first job was as a waiter in a retirement home when you were in eighth grade. With that group being the most at risk during this pandemic, does your experience back then weigh at all on your stance on public health care today? Um, I don't know that that first job really, really impacted me very much. I mean, I was just a dumb kid back then, and I didn't really, you know, I take it seriously. I was just a waiter, you know, at a, at a retirement home. And I mean, I remember it, but um, I think more, I, I, I do get along very well with the elderly, but I think a lot of that has to do more with, I, I was raised a lot um, at my grandparents' house growing up, and um, and we used to play a lot of cards, and they have a lot of their, their elderly friends over and stuff, so I was immersed with, um, with the elderly from, you know, maybe when I was eight years old all the way to probably 16, 17 years old. So I do have a soft spot in my heart for the elderly, and, um, and they are more vulnerable to getting sick. Um, from the COVID virus, so um, I don't know that 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 really changes the way I would um, would go about what I would have done anyways. Because I think that you know we need to focus on the most vulnerable, um, you know, from a from a um, the standpoint of a doctor. But um, but yeah, I mean, but again, the original job, nah, that probably didn't change much. All right, well that makes sense. Moving on to a bit of a heavier topic, you talk a lot. Uh, on your page about your struggle with addiction and your plans to combat the opioid epidemic. Um, as you may or probably don't know, addiction has touched my life as well through some of my very close friends. Can you talk more about your journey and how you hope to solve this crippling issue with the experience that you've learned? Yeah, you know, I mean, this isn't a topic that's hard for me to talk about at all because I talk about it, you know, every day. Anybody that wants to, to know about it, I'm very open about it because I think that um, you know, I had an opioid addiction, um, and uh, I, I took uh, I took Vicodin for a back injury I had. I could not stop taking it. Um, about ten percent of people have this uh, sort of reaction. They they take opiates that they they take more and more. And for me, it became a thing where I had to have it. And it's hard to explain to somebody who's never been through that. But addiction was like I needed it. Like I needed air. I had to have it, even though. Even though uh, I saw my life crumbling around me, you know, I lost my my job. I, I, I had surrendered my medical license while I lost my marriage, friends, all my money. I lost basically everything, but it was like not enough to make me break this habit, even though I had tried several times. But I lost custody of my kids at one point, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I I, uh, I, I was not allowed to see my kids for a couple months, and that was something that was more important to me, and that that sort of shook me enough 
to make me enter a recovery program, which was uh, over 10 years ago now that I've been in recovery. But, um, but yeah, it was, um, it, that was a miserable time in my life. And, um, and, and it all happened um, very fast. I, and I never thought that was something that could happen to me. I thought, you know, I, I, I'm successful. And I, I, I thought I could maybe outsmart the disease. And, and once it started coming on, but but I was susceptible, just like a lot of people, and um, and I and I know a lot of other people now because I, I um, work a program, so I see a lot of other people, and they they have similar stories. Some are worse than mine, some are better than mine, but everybody has a story or knows somebody that has a story. And I think that um, the more I talk about it, and the more other people talk about it, to bring awareness to it. I think it takes the stigma out of it. It's a disease, just like you know any other disease. It's not a personal choice to have an addiction. It's it's something that you you you, you get and and it's very um, it, it can creep up on you. And um, I think that we need to spend money to. I think all, all I think everybody should be entitled to free rehab services. I think that um, people, when they're given the tools they need to be able to break out of addiction, do have a good chance of doing so. Not everybody. A lot of people need to. Uh, to reach a rock bottom, which is lower for some people than others. Everybody has a different rock bottom. But for me, I was lucky enough to, to have the, um, have the, uh, the sort of, um, uh, the, the, the people around me to help build a program of recovery that stuck. And I think if everybody had access to rehabilitation services and has the will, they can break out of it and become successful again. Wow. Well, like I said, I, I've had some friends go through that experience and I know, I don't know personally, but I've heard it's, it's awful and must be very terrible to break through. So I, I commend you for, for, for getting out of it and also for, for running for governor and being so open about it. It must be very inspiring to a lot of people who may have just started their rehabilitation journey. Yeah, that was one of the reasons I went into this was to raise awareness. You know, I, I, I mean, I've got a few different reasons. One of them was to raise awareness to this and I've probably gotten 200 emails and, and phone calls um, in the last couple of weeks of people saying, Hey, you know, one guy was like, look, you know, I wasn't even, I wasn't even um, thinking I could go on today, but I read your thing and it was very inspired and then drew some art and he sent me pictures of the art he drew. And, and so we've been chatting back and forth a little and, and there's a lot of people that have been reaching out and saying that they, they, um, they were happy that I, you know, I shared this story. Wow. That's really amazing. Moving on to the second to last question, what would you say to the people who might think that as that you're a Democrat running against Newsom in this election, that you might not be serious about winning and instead simply trying to split the Democratic vote and hurt Newsom's chance of be, beating a more prominent Republican? Well, that's the exact opposite of what I'm doing, because I, I'm saying um, I'm saying to vote. No, I, my whole campaign, I've said, look. I think he's done a good job. I think he was elected by a two to one margin. I think he, he basically crushed the other guy in the, in the uh, election. He, he got, um, he, he, uh, he got put into office by the will of the people. I think he's done a decent job. I don't think he should be recalled at all. Vote no for the, the, um, the recall. And hopefully he, he wins. Um, but I'm not trying to split any kind of vote because uh, Governor Newsom is not on the second part of the question. So there's no way I'd be splitting or taking away votes from him at all because he's not a choice on the second part. I'm trying to galvanize people to realize that voting, uh, voting on the second, uh, the second part is important because 
as Democrats, you have a chance to be able to vote no on the recall and still pick a Democrat to replace Governor Newsom if he is recalled. That way, that kind of foils the Republican plan to have him recalled and stick a Republican in there. Well, if, a, if enough people vote on the second part to pick one candidate that's good as a Democrat, then 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 it, they, they lose either way. Because then if, if the recall goes through and a Democrat's still in office, well, that doesn't change the policies much. It doesn't allow them to try to finagle in a replacement for uh, Dianne Feinstein and switch the Senate or anything like that. So that's really what I'm trying to do is be a backup plan, put in a, a you know another Democrat to replace Governor Newsom if he is unlucky enough to lose the uh, the recall. Perfect. Thank you for that clarification. All right. Last question: What message do you have for the voters of California? Well, just kind of like what I was just saying, I, I'd say vote no on the recall. Um, you know, I think that I, I would be a solid governor. I think that I, I you know I'm the only medical doctor on the entire ballot, so I think. A backup plan, definitely pick somebody. Don't just leave it blank on the, the second choice. If you are a Democrat and you and you want to have a, a, a say in who replaces him, if it goes through, then then find the best Democrat on the ballot that you like and choose him. It doesn't have to be me, but pick somebody because uh, otherwise you're just letting um, people who are voting yes on the recall be able to then select who replaces uh, Governor Newsom. So vote no, and then if, you, if you're so inclined, vote for me, but definitely vote for somebody. Very good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come on our show. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Sam. I think you did a wonderful job, and, um, and I'd be happy to come on again anytime. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. On behalf of Vote USA, we'd like to thank our guests and you for listening. Please be sure to like and subscribe for more episodes of Candidates Corner and be sure to follow us on Twitter with the handle at VoteUSA1. For more information on the candidates running for office in your community, log on to VoteUSA.org. See you next time.